I'm sure many of you heard our president's State of the Union address this past week as he formally announced his legislative agenda for the year ahead. The centerpiece of his speech was his promise that 2014 will be a year of action. And the president made it clear that he wants Congress to be a part of the action, but if not, he has vowed to act alone. This statement has fueled the reoccurring debate about the limits of presidential authority. Of course, it's never questioned in a totalitarian regime, but it is a sensitive issue in a constitutional democracy. How much authority does our executive branch of government have? Well, the limits of the authority of Jesus is exactly what we're studying from God's Word this weekend as we move from the events of Monday to the events of Tuesday during the week, the most important week in human history, the final week in the life of Jesus on this earth. The fallout from what He had done the day before when He drove the swindlers and the money grubbers out of the temple had settled across the city of Jerusalem, and now Jesus' enemies were striking back with a vengeance. And today we'll see the religious leaders taking turns, ganging up on Jesus to challenge His authority. They wanted to publicly humiliate Him. They wanted to discredit Him. Ultimately, they wanted to silence Him. But we will soon see that their attempts to undermine His authority actually backfired and instead became the platform for Him to establish His authority in profound ways. Now, I've said more than once that I think I have the greatest job in the world. Each week I get to mind the gold in God's Word, and then on the weekends I get to distribute the nuggets to all of you. And that's how I want to approach my task this morning. I want to have you participate with me in the mining process and then bag up some of the nuggets to take home with you today. Let me start by giving you the message in a single statement again. Here it is. The wisest decision you will ever make is to submit to the authority of Jesus. Now, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but when I was a kid, I was kind of obnoxious. I was. I was just a little too bossy. I, I guess it's the result of being a big brother. So if we boys were getting together a game of touch football out on the playground at recess, I thought I knew more about the game than anyone else, so I would pick the captains of the two teams, of which I was always one. And I would generally pick the first player, and I would determine which end of the field my team would occupy and whether my team would kick off or receive. And then I would quarterback the team, assigning positions, calling the plays. But when I finally started refereeing the game, that's when one of the guys would get fed up and would speak up and say something like this, hey, who died and left you in charge? Another way, how did you get to be the boss? Why do you get to make the rules? 
Well, this is the very same question that the Jewish leaders asked Jesus as they challenged His authority. So I want us to move right through chapter 20 of Luke. And there are nearly identical accounts also found in Matthew and Mark. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to discover from this singular chapter some of the greatest truths about the authority of Jesus. First of all, I want you to notice that His authority is challenged in verses 1 through 8. It says, one day as He was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and teachers of the law together with the elders came up to Him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Now this is an important question. Because authority determines human behavior. Authority is responsible for what we think and what we say and what we do. And when we deal with the issue of authority, we're dealing with what is absolutely basic and fundamental to all human behavior. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't allow the religious leaders to dictate the agenda here. So in verse 3 of Luke 20, He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now Jesus is referring here to John the Baptist because John the Baptist's baptism was something new. It was unprecedented. Jewish priests had ritual cleansings and they were always performed in the temple. But John was not a priest, and yet he baptized, and he did it out in the open. He did it in the Jordan River. So this would have raised questions in the minds of the religious leaders about John the Baptist. By what authority does he give us this new practice in Israel? So Jesus asked them this question to see if they would acknowledge God's authority in John's baptism. Look at their response in verse 4. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, He will ask, Why didn't you believe Him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, We don't know where it was from. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Do you see what Jesus did here? He exposed the fact that they recognized divine authority in John the Baptist, and yet they would not acknowledge it. They would not submit to it. They didn't need their question about Jesus' authority answered. They already knew the answer. They just would not accept it. So Jesus is saying, if you can't recognize divine authority when you see it in John the Baptist, no amount of argument will convince you that my authority is from the Creator God. So what's our takeaway here? How does this apply to us today? Well, the authority of Jesus is challenged and it is resisted by some today, just as it was back then. Most people know, I think, especially here in the U.S., that Jesus taught 
and lived the truth. I think people in this country know never a man spoke as he has spoken. No man could do the things he did unless God were with him. I think even honest non-believers in the U.S. find no fault in Jesus. And yet, there is often willful resistance to His authority. Do you ever wonder why profanity has been, is limited to the names of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit in America? So why don't Americans profane the name of Allah or Muhammad or Confucius or Judas or the Dalai Lama? I'll tell you why. Because there is inner acknowledgement, there is inner awareness, there is inner conviction that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the Godhead and the use of profanity invokes divine authority. People think it adds weight to their conversation. So what we have today is the same thing we see in the religious leaders in our text. We have a whole lot of people who know down deep that Jesus is the Son of God, that His Word is authoritative, and yet they're unwilling to submit to the reality of it. It's precisely what you see in these Jewish leaders. They had to reject Him. Because to truly believe He was the Messiah of God would mean that they would have to repent, they would have to submit to His moral teaching. So instead, people question His authority then and now, even though down deep they believe He's God's Son. And the reason is because most people want to be their own authority. They want to be their own authority until they figure out that that doesn't work well in life, and then they'll just go with the authority of someone or something else that fits their lifestyle, like Kabbalah for Madonna, and Buddhism for Jennifer Lopez, and Hinduism for Julia Roberts, and Scientology for Tom Cruise, or the Universal Unitarian, Christopher Reeve. The authority of Jesus was challenged. And the reason it was challenged is because of a lack of willingness to submit to His authority. Well, then Jesus goes on and He asserts that His authority exceeds the authority of the religious leaders. That's in verses 9 to 19. And in this section, Jesus tells a parable. And His parable actually indirectly answers the question about His authority because the story is about the owner of a vineyard who rented his vineyard to some tenant farmers and then he went away and he trusted them to work the vineyard and then to share the fruit of the vineyard with him, the owner, at harvest time. But when the owner sent his servant to collect his share of the rent, the tenant farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent a second servant and a third servant, and they were beaten, and they were treated shamefully, and they were thrown out. And then the long-suffering owner of the vineyard decided to send his only son, whom he loved, thinking 
that he would be respectfully treated. But instead, the tenants determined to kill him, and they did. Now, that's the parable. And it's not hard to track what Jesus is saying here in the story. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders throughout history. And the servants represent God's prophets that He sent. And the Son is none other than Jesus. So Jesus boldly confronts them in this story, revealing who He is, revealing who they have been, revealing who they are, including their plot to take His life. And He also reveals there's coming a time when God will decisively act. In this parable, beginning in verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be! Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The religious leaders rejected the authority of Jesus. They would not accept the fact that He was the capstone or the cornerstone, the foundation for all of life. His offer of salvation, His teaching were and still are the most important building blocks for life. And those who reject Him and His authority, like the tenant farmers, will have to answer to Almighty God. And someone might say, wait a minute, I didn't put Jesus to death. The Jewish leaders did that, the Romans did that, not me. I don't deserve judgment. But we all know it wasn't the Jews or the Romans that caused the death of Jesus. It was because of sin He died on the cross. He said Himself, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. So we too are guilty. And forgiveness comes only by accepting Him as Savior and submitting to Him as Lord. Well, moving on in this chapter, the spies were watching Jesus. It's their turn to try to catch Him in something He said. They wanted to put Him into conflict with the power of the governor. But here we see that the authority of Jesus exceeds the authority of government. Listen. Verse 20, the text says, the spies came up to Jesus pretending to be honest. They stroked Jesus with their words, saying, You speak and teach what is right, and you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then after they set Him up, they ask Him the question, Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should you pay taxes to a government that uses the money wrongly? Is it right to surrender your hard-earned dollars to a government that wastes it or applies it to a purpose that you adamantly oppose? Well, that question is pretty relevant today. The spies here are trying to trap Jesus between two positions that they considered completely irreconcilable. 
Roman taxes would have taken about a third of their income. Now, if Jesus said paying taxes was right, then the Jews would label him a traitor. But if Jesus said paying taxes was wrong, he'd be considered a rebel. He would be subject to arrest. He would either alienate the Roman officials or he would alienate the pious Jews who oppose Roman domination. Their question, the question they asked Jesus, would make him either a heretic or an insurrectionist. The spies thought they had him. But look at Jesus' answer. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So Jesus stated a principle. He didn't take sides, nor did he compromise. To pay what the law requires is not unrighteous. In fact, doing what the government demands is a part of our submission to God. Romans 13 spells this out in more detail. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Jesus was saying government deals only with a small part of our lives and the more insignificant part of our lives. Government authority restricts and regulates just some of our conduct, but the government has no control over our spirits. The government cannot legislate your values. It cannot legislate your convictions. The government cannot touch your inner life, your worship, your conscience, the ultimate authority of your life. In short, the government's authority is limited. The authority of Jesus is unlimited. The government's authority is external. The authority of Jesus is internal. The government's authority is temporal. But the authority of Jesus is eternal. Now, friends, for me, the abortion issue comes into play here in a big way. And I can tell you that I'm very conflicted about tax-subsidized abortion because I strongly believe that the Bible teaches absolutely that life begins at conception and that the termination of a life in or out of the womb is murder. And the thought of even a penny of my personal tax dollars going to underwrite what I consider to be a barbaric act, that's unsettling to me. To say the least, I believe it's a crisis of conscience that each of us must wrestle with in prayer in order to resolve. And there are lots of ways to take a stand against it besides just refusing to pay your taxes. For now, let me tell you how I've resolved it. For now, I consider that I am obligated by Scripture to pay my taxes, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the government... Well, the government will have to answer to the Lord of life about how the money is used. J.B. Phillips once said, the powers that be will one day be the powers that have been. No human authority is permanent, but the authority of Jesus is, and He alone will reign forever and forever.
But we also see, beginning in verse 27, that His authority exceeds the authority of our imagination. Well, the chief priests bombed, didn't they? And the spies bombed, and now it's the Sadducees' turn to bomb as they attempt to undermine the authority of the Jesus. Uh, the authority of Jesus. The Sadducees, these guys, did not believe in the resurrection. They denied the whole idea of an afterlife. They rejected eternal life. And that's why they're called Sadducee. <laughs> so their hypothetical case here that they bring to Jesus in this section of Scripture is they, a they ask Him a question. Here's a woman, they said, and she marries, her husband dies, and she marries his brother, he dies. She marries his, the next brother, he dies, the next brother, he dies, seventh brother, he dies. No children, seven brothers, all dead. They said, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? <laughs> These guys didn't even believe in the afterlife. And they're asking Jesus this hypothetical question. It's absurd. It's contrived. It reminds me of people who come up with questions like, can God make a weight so great that He Himself cannot lift it? Hmm, what do you think? Well, I don't think about that. Jesus recognized their insincerity. He recognized the absurdity of the hypothetical situation they were bringing to Him, and so He ignores it, and He uses his answer to teach some truths about heaven, and in so doing, he establishes that his authority transcends human imagination. It transcends this earth. Look at his authoritative statements that could only be made by someone who knows firsthand what awaits us in the greater life, the afterlife. Luke 20, verse 35. Jesus said, those who are considered worthy of taking part in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. He, that is God, is not the God of the dead but of the living. I love this. For to Him all are alive. Whether you're dead on earth or alive on earth, to Him all are alive. And no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus asserts here that it's not realistic to project our imagination or earthly conditions onto our future state of being. He implies that the Sadducees had, in their unbelief, reduced eternal life to a very human perspective, assuming that it could only, that heaven could only include the best elements in this life, like marriage. But Jesus promises in heaven there will be a new way of relating, a new way of relating to others that is infinitely more satisfying than even the most fulfilling earthly relationships. Think about that. So we won't be married in heaven, but Jesus said we'll be even closer. And I just have to trust Him here, folks. I just have to trust the Lord here because I feel like I'm already married to an angel. Ah. 
One final thing here. He closes this chapter by asserting his authority exceeds all authority. Verses 41 to 44, here, here's the conclusion of Jesus' teaching on authority. He says here that his authority is ultimate because he is God. You see, the Jews understood that the Messiah, the coming one, would be a descendant of King David. But, but Jesus quotes David's own words here from Psalm 110 in verse 42. These are the words of David from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus said David calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord. How then can he be his son? The statement should be understood like this. The Lord said to my Lord, God said to my God, Jesus is asserting that he is more than a mortal born in the lineage of David. He is Lord. He is God. The only meaning that makes sense here is that David himself wrote in this psalm that Jesus quotes that the Messiah would be more than just a man. He would be God. And after his resurrection and just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus declared in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's quite a statement because that statement leaves no room for debate. He doesn't say, I feel. He doesn't say, I think. He doesn't say, it might be. He doesn't say, most opinion polls say. It's a straightforward Statement of fact. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it asserts a truth that every living soul, every living soul with, will either believe or doubt, accept or reject. All authority, not some, not most. This means everything in every place, heaven and earth. Richard Mao, in his book Uncommon Decency, puts it this way. There's not one square inch of the entire cosmos about which Jesus Christ does not claim, this is mine. This belongs to me. He has all authority in heaven and on earth because he is God. His authority exceeds the authority of any religious leader. It exceeds the authority of any government of men. It exceeds the authority of human imagination. His authority exceeds all power and authority. And His authority? Well, it's either challenged or it is embraced. And if all authority belongs to Jesus, then the most important issue in every life is, am I going to acknowledge this authority and do my best to live under it for life? Or am I going to go through my life resisting it? Can I conclude with our sentence sermon? The wisest decision you will ever make is to submit to the authority of Jesus 
because of all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, then we're going to have to deal with him sooner or later. In life or in death, he's either our Savior and Lord now, or he will be our authoritative judge then. Will you stand with me for prayer? Our Father, we thank you so much for the words of Jesus in this passage where he reveals so much to us about his authority. And our Father, we... We don't want to challenge it today. We want to embrace it because we know that the highest and best in life, the deepest and best in life for us is when we live in His grace and under His loving Lordship. In Jesus' name.